This has been Suttles with Disrupt Equity. If you're looking to learn about recession-proof real estate, I want you to listen to my friend Sam Newell's podcast because he's got a lot of values. He's, he's bringing a lot of good guests on there, and he's going to teach you a lot of things about what happens when the recession does come and how to recession-proof your real estate portfolio. Welcome to the Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Well, tell me this. So I've had a couple people approach me about raising money. I haven't done it yet because I've waited, kind of just watch how different people operate, yep. who, rate, who they have raised money for them. Well, let's take Powell's deal, to, for example. How do you how do you see what Powell's doing? Cause he's doing a fund of a fund, right? Yeah, he's doing it. He's doing it that, that way. And then the other thing too, is we had a conversation with him on Monday. Ultimately my agreement is with Powell and Juan, Juan being WON, which is his business partner. Right. You know, and I say, you know, we expect participation above and beyond a capital raise. We're not going to plug a number to it. We're not going to say, Oh, for, 1.5 million, I'm going to give you 3% of the GP or whatever it might be. Right. I don't know. Right. Right. right? You're our co-sponsor. You're a partner on the deal. These are the things that we expect of you, you know, and so like what kind of things do you feel like obviously has to be other than raising money. It's worth bringing on a, a Powell and let's just throw arbitrary numbers. Let's just say, let's say I wanted to do, do the same thing as Powell. Um, let's say I, I think I can raise 2 million for the deal. Yeah. What else can I help with and do to be part of that GP? Yeah. I mean, it has to be, it, it can't be, and he brought up another good point, right? Which was like the guy was, you know, doing something minimal and then he brought $2 million to the table. Right. So there has to be, but once again, it's a gray area. So we have to, we have to really kind of dissect the process and the roles and the responsibilities and say, okay, you know, if this person probably can bring 2 million, what can they do that's a significant part of the process beyond the two million yeah. that can you know that we can legitimately say with a straight face and you know without lying, hey, this this guy or this gal is doing these other three functions and these are integral parts of the process. Yeah, and you know I was talking to somebody about this the other night, right? So there's there's a there's different ways that you can dissect the deal, right? From pre-close to the closing process to post-close, right? There's three different stages of a deal, right? right. And people can chime in anywhere, any part of this process, right? You know, from, you know, bird dog and deals looking, you know, work like say, for example, somebody brings me a deal. That's worth something. You know that's worth saying? the most like, right now. <laughs> I mean, like that's huge, right? You know I mean? So, you know, they, you bring me a deal, man, and that's a deal that, that's worth part of the GP. Now, how much of that is negotiable, right? Everything's negotiable, right? Yep. You know, but say this guy's chewing through a hundred deals a month. He's underwriting all these deals. He finds one golden nugget and he's like ben ferris i want to do this deal but i don't have the experience i don't have the wherewithal i don't have the capital raising skills whatever you know okay you know for us we're going to bring you know we're going to give you 10 percent of the gp or whatever it might be right mm -hmm. you know and uh you know for bringing the deal and you know we'll probably still assign 
other tasks to that person, right? You know, okay, you brought the deal, but that ain't it, right? Right, right. Because it's not going to be like you're going to you're going to dump a, a golden nugget on us, and then we got to do all the hard work, right? You know, there's right. other things that have to happen, right? From once again, from pre-close to closing to post-close, and so you've got you know the underwriting, the finding of the deal, the due diligence, and all the document, you know. You know, because you have to go through piles and piles of documentation when it goes through due diligence, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, to putting up earnest money or at-risk capital or fees or whatever it is. There's, you know, obviously earnest money is the biggest one of that, but there's application fees. There's what do you, you guys know, usually do for earnest money? Sorry to interrupt. Um, you know, either we usually what we do, we'll usually front end it. You know, because usually we're we're moving quickly, and it's just easier for us just to pay for it. But we've had people take us out like Oliver took us out on Alamo and, you know, but Oliver's also doing construction management for us. So, you know, he's one of our co-sponsors on the deal, you know, but he's, you know, he's got a line of credit that's two or 3 million with a construction company that he uses and then he, he never really greens it up. So he's always got money. So got like, I'll take you out. So then that frees us up and our capital up to keep growing and putting more honors money over here and there. Right. Got it. That's on a case by case basis. You know, how um, much is the earnest money on this deal that you're working on? That was 150 K. Yeah. Right. You know, but we've, I mean, we've done deals where it was 250 K. Yeah. You know, and then sometimes there's like a, there's a, a, there's another stage, right? Where it's 250 up front and then there's another 150 after due diligence. Right. So you're at 400 K. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the syndicator so, here in Salt Lake does a million refundable after one week. Yeah, I mean that's. that's but he, if he makes an offer, he knows he's going to buy it. Yeah, I mean that's that's really ultimate. We've already done a ton of due diligence up front, right? Yeah. So there's there's, it's a very slim chance. The only thing that's really going to blow up the deal is like, they were fraudulently, you know, trying to you know cover up something. Yeah. Or there's just systematic, plumbing foundation or issues that we couldn't see during our initial property tours. Right. Due diligence you know, that would completely blow up the deal. Like say, for example, you got a $2 million in foundation problems and you absolutely have to fix them. Well, guess what? My whole entire budget was a million. Right, right, right. <laughs> that one thing that's $2 million, that doesn't make any sense. So I'd you know, obviously back out of there. Sure. You know, but, you know, so that, but ultimately that's, you know, that's a lot of it's on us too. So we usually get through kind of that, that upfront process too. Mm -hmm. where we're, where we feel confident, okay, we're ready, we're ready to rock. And then sometimes somebody will take us out, you know, with the earnest money. And, but that offers, that's, that's, that's an opportunity cost for us for, so that, yeah. that odd, that adds a lot of value. Yeah. So, sure. you know, we've got that, you know, um, there's, there's other things, right? So what am I, what am I missing? So you've got underwriting, looking for a deal, bringing a deal. You've got the whole due diligence process from walking units to reviewing documents. You've got putting up earnest money, putting up, the other fees and all the ancillary costs that you have involved in, in taking down a deal, you know, cause some of the bank fees can be, you know, 30, 50 grand, you sure. know, and then you're going to have stuff during due diligence, like scope and plumbing lines. Like that ain't free. Yeah. Pay somebody to do that. that might be another 5k, right. Yep. You know, on top of maybe something else. So you might be in it for another 50, 60,000 bucks, you know, yeah. and that's tied up until you close if you ever do. Right. There's you no, know, because so, what about um, investor relations? How much time, money do you guys spend on doing webinars, educating the people that have committed money? 
So that's another thing too, you know, so you get through the due diligence. I'm kind of almost kind of going in a, in a, in a sequence here. So you get through due diligence, you review all your documents. Okay. I'm ready to rock. You know, somebody's already put up the earnest money, you know, now you need some KPs too, right? You know I mean? Now, you know, as, as we build our net worth that that becomes less and less of an issue uh -huh. but on a bigger loan, right? It, it's always nice. The bank always likes to have, you know, really only like three or four guys or gals mm -hmm. versus 15. And what do you see the, the loan amount versus K KPs, at liquidity, net worth, all that? What, what are you seeing required right now? So right now, it's it's becoming a little bit more where, well, I'll get, so typically it's, you know, the, the net worth has to equal the loan amount, right? Right. And usually in terms of liquidity, so that's bank, that's money in the bank or stocks, right? Something that's easily turned into cash, mm -hmm. self-directed IRAs or 401ks, any of that stuff. They don't, they don't look, oh, oh, and you know, real estate, they don't look at that as a liquid investment, right? Right. So all that has to add up to at least 10% of the loan amount as well. Got it. Right? Got so it. the loan amount's 10 million, right? You need to have a million dollars. Now the, the beauty of commercial real estate, right, is once again, it's, it's a it's a cumulative thing. So all right. the you can add up to a million. It doesn't have to be, everybody has to have a million dollars in the bank. Right, right. You no, know, that's the, that's once again, the beauty of it. And, but on top of that, now the banks are asking for, they're putting up, they're, they're, they're putting up some, some barriers where they're saying, Hey, you got to have some skin in the game because a lot of people, what they were doing mm -hmm. is they were going through these programs, right? They were getting, they're bringing in everybody they could to get them into a loan and to prop up their own personal net worth and liquidity oh. and stuff. And they weren't putting up any money. And then they were taking massive acquisition fees at the beginning. You know, they walk away with four or 500,000 bucks and they didn't put a dime into the deal. Now, Dude, that's been my biggest worry with half these people is they're chasing like, acquisition fees. Well, okay. So full disclosure, we take them too, but we also put money in, right? You know, so right. and that's fine. And it's, and it's above and beyond what we take as an acquisition fee. And I'm going to tell you why an acquisition fee is important. I, you know, I've done several deals without them. Uh -huh. I also invest passively. So I'm looking at it from both sides. I, I see both sides of this argument, right? You know, having done deals, look for deals, put deals together. I understand how much work is really goes into this, right? Right. You know, a significant amount of work, right? I mean, I'm doing more work than the mortgage broker's doing. I'm doing more work than the real estate broker's doing. And they're all getting paid 2 or 3%, you yeah. know, and I'm the one putting up all the money. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and yeah. Time. I mean, time's huge. You know, yeah, that's an opportunity cost, right? You know, I mean, and so, you know, I, I look at it like, hey, are, you know, I'm aligned to, you know, with everybody else, you know, I want this to perform, you know, my promo and only you know, there's hurdles, right? Like right. I only get paid if they get paid their pref and they're split first and then it goes to me. Right. Well, you know? and the, the thought I've always had is if I'm killing it, if I'm absolutely an expert professional at what I'm doing, I better be getting paid because that's the only incentive to be that professional. I mean, you're, if, you're a broker. If a, you know I mean? L, yeah. If an LP doesn't want me to get paid, I don't want that LP because they're looking for someone cheap. Who's probably not going to do as good of a job. Yep. So, you know, it's like Grant Cardone, he can raise $400 million, take all the acquisition fees he wants, but he adds massive, massive value. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a problem with people taking acquisition fees. I have a problem with people not investing and also doing a mediocre job and just grabbing that acquisition fee.
Yeah, and that's and, and and you'll see that. That's and so the banks have seen that. You know, this 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 rise of the the syndication model has been ten years in the making, and right. some people are taking advantage of it. And this is also probably goes back to our earlier part of the discussion, right? Which is this the, the SEC, right? There's just you know people are getting wind that there's some shysty guys out there. Yeah, we're trying to do the business right, but not everybody is. You know, some right. people blowing in town. They're structuring two or three deals. They're making a couple million bucks, and then they're leaving everybody high and dry, right? You know. Yeah, I, I have an investor worth a lot of money. He's out of Southern California, and he said he's like Sam. I won't ever do a syndication again. He's like, I lost, I lost everything I put in, and I'm like, oh, you know, that's that's well, so frustrating. You know, it's, it's true, man. There's operators. There's some. There's obviously risk, man. There's yeah. and that's that's stated in our PPM, right? I mean, there's. Right ultimately you can lose your whole entire investment. Right. Right. But from an LP standpoint, that's what LP means, right? You're limited. That's your, that you're only limited to the amount of money that you put in too. Right. right. So you're not going to come after your house. You're not going to come after your, this or that, you know, you put a hundred thousand dollars in, you better be prepared that you might lose that. Yeah. You know, we're doing everything that we can to mitigate risk through buying in the right markets, you know, with the right economic factors you know, we have insurance on all of our deals. We're leveraging it properly and, and responsibly. All these things go in, having enough cash on the side, right? We have a cash yep. reserve, right? Keeping that. What do you typically do cash reserves? Um, it's funny. I was just doing a Facebook live about underwriting and we were underwriting three deals last night, but what do you typically do cash reserves? Let's say it's a 200 door facility. You're paying Oh, I don't know, 15 million for it or so. Yep. I'm usually doing 5% of, so on top of what I've already, so say for example, let's just use it a round number, right? I'm, I'm raising 5 million bucks, right? I'm raising an additional 5% of that, you know, as kind of a cash reserve, you know, um, because, and I'm going to tell you why. I'll go back to my first deal. So we had a pretty healthy cash reserve, but the property flooded during Hurricane Harvey. And so Hurricane Harvey took out 33 units on a 92 unit property. We were down to like 60% occupancy, Jeez. you know, and the lender didn't give us any forbearance. So forbearance is essentially like, Hey, give me a month or two to get enough cash together to actually pay the note. Right. Right. You know, just push the, the interest on the back end. And they said, no. Wow. So, I mean, what were we going to do? Either we're coming out of our own pocket, yeah. right. Or we're having to do the dreaded cash call or we have the money in the bank. Well, we had the, the foresight on that deal, which was, was performing very, very well to just be, you know, we only, we were only giving out about 80% of the actual returns that we could have given out. And the other 20% on top of the money that we had raised at the beginning was being set aside. Well, that helped us for six months to pay the note, to pay our bills. I mean, we probably could have still done a distribution if we really wanted to, but ultimately we didn't. We waited until we got the rehab done. Sure. You know, I mean, and that was, that's a month for the rehab is all. Yeah. Because I mean, we had, we, on top of the 33 units we had to bring on, we had to pretty much redo the whole entire property. We, we had to do the office, the clubhouse, the pool area, all the ACs, you know, uh, laundromats, all that stuff had to be redone. You know, what a lot of people don't know is Hurricane Harvey affected a lot of parts of Texas and there was a labor shortage. There was a material shortage, you know, I mean, sheetrock went, it was gone like that, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody yeah. knew sheetrock, right? And yeah. then and then all the labor went through the roof, if you could even get anybody. Luckily, we had some pretty good contacts, and our guy got on it pretty quick. But, 
you know, um, it could have been worse. So that's, sure. I, always, I always use that as an example as to why you want to have some money because you just never know there could be a natural disaster, you know, something could happen. And so, yeah. and, and so it's funny that you talk about that. That's the whole reason for this podcast that I'm launching and sending out to people is recession proof real estate. Well, you had a mini six month recession yeah. and you exactly. guys are ready for it. Yeah. You know, um, I have investors, you know, I sold $50 million in rental properties last year. And I would say 90% of my investors don't have two months mortgage payments set aside. And I started realizing that and I started calling people back being like, Hey, how much money do you have set aside? Oh, well, none. Why? <laughs> you know, they're just, they're spending their cash flow Like, like it's, it's just play money. So well, I love what you just said there. The rule of thumb on commercial, right, is one or two months debt service and one or two months expenses. It really depends on the asset and where you're located at, right? right. Do, you, do you do one or do you do two? I always look at it like this. If with that amount of buffer plus the additional reserves that we bring in on as part of the raise, mm -hmm. you burn through that, you've got bigger, more catastrophic problems on your hands, man. Either they're... Right. Depression, we're in World War Three, or something else is, is really <laughs> happening. I always tell people this too, right? You know, if you're having trouble, be the first one to call your bank. Don't let it drag on them right. have to chase you. Get ahead of it and work out some kind of a workout clause with them because, you know, they're going to appreciate that. Trust me. Sure. Now, it might not be pretty. They might say no at first, but ultimately they don't want to take the property back. Trust me, yeah, they don't want to own property. People think, well, there's some bridge debt, shady bridge guys that will do that. But the, the, you know, the dust lenders, the arbors, the hunts, the graystones of the world, the Doherty mortgages, those guys don't want to take the property back, man. They don't have the bandwidth to do that. So right. work something out, they'll work out some kind of a, you know, a payment period that, that you can, you can kind of work towards that, you know, will get you caught up. So I always tell people do that too. If you see that, man, six months out, I'm going to have a problem here, you know, because whatever you got into it and you had to do more of a repositioning or there was more rehab or I don't know, the market is tanking around you, you know, get ahead of it, you know, because if you don't and you're the last guy to call the lender, the lender's going to say tough luck. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to work out 50 other loans with the guys that actually reached out to me. And we're right. About it. Now that's great advice. I, I love that. I need to, I need to get a gong or something in my office. Have you ever listened to uh, that podcast, Respect the Grind? <laughs> no, but you got to listen to it, man. He is, I'm going to send it to you right now, or I'll send it to you when we get done. So it's called Respect the Grind. And he's got this gong in his office. When someone says something profound, I, maybe I don't want to copy him, but the last few days recording these, I'm like, dang it, I need something because I want our listeners to snap to attention when something profound like that is said. And so reach out to the lender. Don't yeah. wait until you're behind yeah, and have be six proactive. months contingency. So, so I'm curious about your insurance company though. How did they work? Because one of the other deals that I sent some investors to, I didn't get paid on. I didn't raise money for it. I just sent investors to it. Just had a bunch of the roofing and ACs just blow apart in a windstorm. And the insurance company, I think they wanted a $50,000. Well, no, they wanted to give $25,000 for repairs. So I, I've, got a, I've got a ton of experience on this, man. Okay. So with the property that flooded during Hurricane Harvey, we once again, we had the foresight to have flood insurance. We were along the coast. We're here in Texas. Hurricanes happen. Flooding happens. Right. Everything that I have here along the coast in Texas have flood insurance on, even if it's not in the floodplain. 
Right. And I'm, I'm glad that I did because this wasn't in a floodplain and it's still flooded. Wow. So ultimately we had to go through the FEMA process, which you're dealing with the government that can be very, very painful. So really what it is, is you call them up. I was, we were on the phone for like six hours because mm-hmm. everybody was calling them at the same time. Right. You know, we got a very nice lady on the phone. She assigned a couple uh, of adjusters to us and they go out and they do an inspection. Right. And because it's commercial property, they usually have two or three guys. It's not one guy that does it. Right. And they'll assign certain buildings to certain guys. And so then we go out there along with our general contractor, we meet these people. Right. And, uh-huh. you know, we walk through all the things that are wrong and all the things that we need to fix, repair, replace. And uh, then they assign a number to it. Well, you know, you can either have uh, somebody that's very gracious Right. Somebody that's not very gracious, but ultimately the adjusters get paid on the amount of money that they, they give out to. So you know, that's a little tidbit that a lot of people don't know, Yeah. you know, but you might have just a guy. I mean, they're there to save the company money, right? They're not well, they, there to save your day. Yeah. Kind of, you know, they're also there to, they're all, they're working on behalf of the insurance company too. Right. right. You know, so you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a negotiation, right? You know, but as long as you can, you go in there and you can justify what you're going to do and how much it's going to cost, they'll usually take your, your recommendations into consideration, right? Have you had to hire an outside investor? This is where I was going with it, right? Okay. You know, so if this hadn't gone the way that it did, ultimately they were extremely, they were, they were extremely helpful. They're very gracious. You know, they gave us the money that we needed, but if they hadn't, right, I would have, I, and we got approached by a lot of those guys. Those guys were like, like storm chasers rolling into town. Right, like, I bet. Like, how did you even get my phone number? And they were just like, oh, you know, I can get you more money, you know, hire me, blah, blah, blah. But those guys are out there too. And they'll, they'll independently, and then they work on your behalf. And then right. they'll do a little bit of a negotiation. But sometimes I can work against you. And, you know, just like, t- you know, protesting your taxes here in Texas. Like sometimes you just, hey, man, they gave you a good, they gave you a good appraisal. Don't. Don't yeah. try to don't try to milk it for what you need. You know what's interesting on this Dallas deal? It was actually Robert's Robert and Rod's deal. Mm-hmm. So fifty thousand dollar deductible, the insurance company wanted to pay twenty five thousand. Robert That's flies out there, hires an outside adjuster. They end up getting a million mm-hmm. because the roofs were trashed. I mean, all everything had to be replaced, and and this company. <laughs> uh, thought 25,000 would do the trick. And yeah, they're, so, sometimes they're just trying to throw an amount at you. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it pays to be experienced. Um, no, that's, that's really good info. I, so I love that you've had this experience because I was telling, uh, Michael Young, I think you met him at, at mm-hmm. uh, I was telling him, you know, I've, I've been studying syndication, studying, 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 just been a student of it for, for a while now. And the only thing I can't learn are these experiences. And, and that's why I want to, team up with a key, a couple of key partners over the next few years. You know, my goal is to have a billion dollars under management. I'm going to get there in 10 years, but not without a couple of key partners who have had these experiences are extremely conservative. Yep. You know, it's, it's easy to tell the difference between someone just trying to get deals done and someone with a long-term play in mind. But hey, we didn't start the podcast off. Oh, I thought we were. I thought it was recording. It is recording, but... Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about you first. No worries, man. No worries. I, I like to talk a lot. So as we'll you jump see. back into this here in a sec, but no, that was really good value. I loved what we were talking about SEC, you know, insurance companies, lenders, that's all good stuff. But tell me about Ben Suttles. Where were you in high school? What, what are you thinking about being a syndicator? Are you thinking about being a fireman? I'm 
I wasn't, I didn't have the, the foresight of some of the people that we know that are in their twenties doing this stuff, man. Um, I was all over the map. I, I grew up here in Houston. I went to military school um, for a few years. I went to New Mexico Military Institute. Oh, wow. I ultimately graduated from a place called Cypress Creek here in Houston because uh, I wanted to come back and, and hang out with my friends and, and yeah. do that. You know, went to tech for a year, Texas Tech, which is in Lubbock, Texas. Okay. which is actually close to the Mexico military Institute. So I was very familiar with that whole part of the country. Got it. Um, I forgot why I didn't like that part of the country. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I ultimately moved from Lubbock to Austin um, after my first year at tech and I was at uh, Austin community college, you know, looking to, um, you know, try to get into UT because I wasn't, I wasn't the A student, man. I'll just admit it. <laughs> you know, um, I was, you know, probably a solid B or C student just because, you know, I, I got pretty bored in school. Yeah, yeah. That worked for a couple of years. I lived in Austin. I love Austin. Um, that probably be the only other place that I live in Texas. But I had a couple of buddies. How do you were, like Austin? Sorry to interrupt. How do you like Austin? I love Austin, man. Austin's, it's got a different vibe than, than most of Texas. I wouldn't consider myself liberal, but, you know, I just like the fact that it's got some culture to it. Houston's very kind of, everybody work, moves to Houston or Dallas for work. Right. right. There's a lot of transplant people. There's a lot of people from the North and Hey, I'm, or a lot of people from the West coast, just I'm here to work. Right. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of culture there because everybody brings their own stuff. And you know, I mean, it's, it's tough, but I still love Houston, but I like Austin as well for different reasons. And there's a lot of things that you can do outside. You know, me and my family, we love hiking. We love going to the lake. We love the rivers, you know, all that type of stuff. And there seems to be a lot more of that in that central Texas part of the country. Hmm. Than, uh, than there is in Houston. And it's not as hot. I mean, it's still hot, but it's not as hot. A couple of my buddies, you know, kind of going back, this would have been, you know, maybe 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of my buddies were going out to LA. They were going to go strike it big, you know, in, in, in Hollywood, right? Nice. You know, so they were going to a, you know, a film school out there. You know, I was still kind of grasping at straws. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So ultimately, I moved out to LA with really not a plan. Other than, hey, I'm going to go to the same, same film school because I, want, I liked writing, you know, and then I learned. So obviously I, I honed that craft a little bit. I also got into directing and acting as well when I was out there. Oh, wow. But uh, one of the things that, that uh, is not a cliche is that it really is a tough, it really is a tough industry to get into. Um, and it's it, you either, unless you're Steven Spielberg talented or you have some kind of a foot in the door you right. know, mommy and daddy or a friend or somebody that's going to vouch for you. It's a tough, it's a tough industry to get into. Right. And so quickly I ran out of money, you know, and, and so, you know, I was bartending, I was just doing, you know, odd jobs out there. Well, my parents own an IT company in Houston, right. Uh-huh. And they were kind of looking to expand sales on the West coast. And so my dad kind of approached me with an opportunity. He was like, Hey, do you want to maybe learn how to sell, you know? And so you know, at the time I was like, oh, I'm never going to work for my parents, blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Right. But ultimately it was, it, I, I took the opportunity. I started kind of developing out our portfolio on the West Coast. And, um, you know, it ultimately, you know, allowed me to. Really, people don't do a good job of pausing and saying, hey, this property I'm planning to buy, what, what if I, I'm modeling it out to sell, right, in six years. What yeah. price point am I selling it at? And like, does that even make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, I don't want to mention any names. I'm sure I got to say to be careful, but it's like, you know, cases like where okay, so if I'm modeling a deal that I'm buying, let's say I'm buying a deal at 80 a door yeah. and I'm putting 20 a door into it. So now my cost base is a hundred. 
right? And now this is, let's say it's a 70 year old, yeah, built in the 70s. So it's about a 50 year old deal, right? Yeah. So my cost base is a hundred and I'm planning to sell it at 110 a door. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. But that's kind of above replacement costs. Does anyone actually pay that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if the NOI supports it, like really, you know what I mean? What does that feel right? So there's a lot of times that like we underwrite a deal and, you know, maybe it can handle a bigger, like a higher price point, but we have to back off because I'm just like, man, this doesn't pass like just the sniff test. Yeah. I mean, people are so yeah. fixated on just, you know, to me, numbers don't lie. And I'm the first person to say that, but the numbers also don't lie whenever you're talking about replacement costs versus, you know, so there's kind of two schools of two conflicting sets of numbers is the problem. And so to me, you know, I don't care for the deals that are, you know, hundred a door and putting 20 into it. And then, you know, maybe I make it, I mean, those are, those are crazy, right. To me. So, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah that's my problem is though those kind of deals. Right. And that's why we don't own anything in Houston or Dallas. I mean, we've struggled to, get a deal that Just works because you Houston can't get it to a, a low enough price. I mean, you would own in Houston or Dallas, but the market's too hot there. It sounds like, yeah, like I love the markets, right? The markets are nice, but the price yeah. points are not attractive well, enough. And that's why you're looking at building just like me. It's like, well, wait a second. If I'm going to pay hundred dollars a door, hundred thousand a door or whatever it is. I literally got a proposal it. today from this friend. Yesterday I went and looked at some, some lands and got the, the price points and everything. So we could build, you know, 75 a door. Dude, that's awesome. I, we need to talk more about that. And, and, and we have the same thought process. I'm building in Utah and Boise, writing offers on, on uh, 15 acre parcels, five acre parcels, where if there's going to be rent appreciation, it's going to be great in a non-luxury A-class. You know, that's, that's pretty recession proof. I'm not going to build luxury and I don't think you are either, but maybe spend a tiny bit more and maybe have a little bit lower return at, at the beginning. But eventually, I mean, I think it's, that's one of the best buys you can do in this market is new construction at a lower price yeah. and not paying a premium for a C-class 50-year-old building. Yeah, no, I call it how do you build the A-minus-minus product and solve the affordable housing. It's funny, yesterday, as part of looking at the land, we were in a pocket of Houston that is more lower income. And so we're kind of going through that whole area. Because um, yeah, there's some people that, we know that have land in different areas and we're just driving through all the land. But the guy took me to this one neighborhood where it's essentially their houses that are for rent. So Matt, you know, one guy built the whole neighborhood. He just rents them out. And, you know, I think of it almost like a unique multifamily, right? Wow. But it's really, you know, he's building them at, you know, 55, 60, $65 a square foot built. Jeez. <laughs> are they like cement floors and like. They look decent. No, they're, I mean, they, they look good. Uh, they don't look bad. I mean, I should have taken pictures, but. Yeah, I mean, it's just an interesting business model. But again, he's solving that affordable housing problem, right? And making good money for it, right? So interesting. Yeah, and, and affordable housing yeah, is a real need, thing. I mean, in Houston, you know, houses are big, right? People don't need big houses in general, right? Especially if you're solving the affordable house. So then the problem that what, what scared me about that was like, man, people could pay this kind of rent and get this whole house. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, there's apartments that are not nowhere near as nice that our people are expecting to pay more, right? So yeah that this is weird <laughs> land is so cheap right yeah that that is crazy well I, I still think it's smart though you know why again why put your investors money into a 50 60 year old building that needs rehab that may not sell for 110 a door in five or six years you know yeah. but hey a class 
non-luxury A class, I think is the answer. I think you're on to something there. So we'll have to talk more, but we'll definitely see. So tell me about your, you've got some really cool deals going on. You've got some, you've purchased some really cool deals. As far as a syndicator goes, you know, what is a target return for your investors? You're not going to do 130% on each deal. So what are you targeting and what are you trying to do? Our deals that we're modeling today are typically doubling people's money in five or six years. Right. It just depends on the deal, you know, how much value add, what's the risk, right? For doing if it's a more risky deal in the sense of there's down units, like we as sponsors are having to do a lot more work. I expect that deal to be, you know, more of a five year play, right? For having to if that deal only works at a six year play at the price point, well, I mean, I'd rather go buy a deal where we don't have to do all this extra heavy lift. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. So you know, we're typically looking eight to twelve percent cash on cash is what we're kind of trying to average. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're looking at you know, on a reversion cap, we're looking to be kind of three quarters to a point higher than kind of what the, the market is. And that's the important thing is what the market is. People really fixate on, you know, oh, I bought it. If I overpay for a deal at five cap and then I underwrite it on the exit at six cap, does that make sense? Well, no, not if the market was already a six and I'm a, I just yeah. chose to overpay. And so it's really what is the market cap that you're looking at? Well, explain reversion cap because most people don't know what that is. So you yeah, buy so something market average, let's say the market average is a 6% cap rate. So the first question is, what is a cap rate, right? So yeah. I tell people cap rate is simple. It's if you bought a property all cash and you did nothing extra to it and you operated the exact same way as the previous owner, right? How much, what would you expect to get in a year? Right. That's all a cap rate is. Now reversion cap rate. So cap rates are valuable. Why? So today with a house, right? If you're selling your house in the neighborhood, you pull comps and you see what are the other houses in the market selling for? Mm-hmm. Well, with commercial real estate, it's not that easy. There's not as many. It's not... It's not uh, it's income the based, right uh, next to you. It's more about, yeah, like what is, how much are they, how much income are they producing? So the way you yeah. compare different assets is you look at cap rates. And so a market might be a six cap. Austin's more of a five and a four and a half cap, right? Different markets have different caps. And that's really all the properties in that market or that submarket are going for that cap rate. Now, whenever we talk about the cap rate, the cap rate, the equation for the cap rate is, is that, you know, the cap rate is equal to the NOI over the value. Right. So there's a relationship between the NOI and the value in the cap rate. Yep. And so now whenever we're talking about reversion cap rate, we're saying, okay, in five years or six years, whenever we sell this deal, right. If the market, you know, we assume the market's going to get worse. Maybe right. it'll stay the same and that's fine. That's gravy, but don't count we on assume it. Cap rates are going to go up. Exactly. We don't assume there's going to be more cap rate compression. Yeah. We assume that today what I buy at a seven cap, I might have to sell at an eight cap in a year. And so reversion cap is just how I calculating my value based on what I think the cap rates will be in five years. And, and so I think what you said earlier is, and, and I think it's across the board, people are expecting to either sell at the same cap rate they bought or a, a lower cap rate, which is a terrible yeah, mistake. Deals where they assume it's going to get better. And I'm but like, but the, right. the same estimation that they're using for that, it goes into their rent bumps. They're probably estimating bigger rent yeah. bumps than they can actually get or estimating lower expenses than they'll actually have or lower um, capital expenditures than they'll actually have. And so I think you have bu- people buying deals with completely wrong estimations of yeah. what well, they can sell like, it for, are, what they can rent it for and how much money they actually need to put into it. Yeah. Like there's simple things that will really impact a deal, right? Like if all you do is I can take like the worst deal I underwrite and make it look good. If all you do is do a slightly better reversion cap, right? These are subtle things right? Instead of doing, you know, a point, maybe I do half a point. And then instead of doing two or two and a half percent rent multipliers, I do three and a half percent. 
And instead of doing two and a half percent expense multipliers, I do 2%. So now all that alone will take a deal that might underwrite at 20% mm -hmm. over five years and make it look like a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's funny that you mentioned that. So that's one thing that maybe our listeners can look out for is if you're looking into syndicators, I mean, syndicators are a dime a dozen right now. Good syndicators, there's a difference. And, and that's what Ferris, you just mentioned is, you know, a syndicator right now can find a deal and make it look pretty sexy, you know, put lipstick on a pig on a pro forma and get people's money by the deal. And guess what? He's going to get a big acquisition fee and good for him. But the problem is, is the exit, you know, and the actual returns to that investor, especially if the market changes. So talk to me about the market changing. What do you, what do you guys put into place? I know you have, you know, capital reserves. I know you have um, different things in place, but let's say the market does go down and we've got five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10% vacancy in units. Um, what, what have you guys done to ensure that you're going to be not as I mean, at risk as others? You got to stress test the deals. I mean, that's really what it boils down to, right? Again, numbers don't lie. So if Occupancy takes a dip and we can't get rent escalators, where is the deal? Are we, the most important thing is there's return on your money and there's return of your money. So you syndicate, you want to make sure you always can return their money, right? Yeah. First and foremost, can we service the note? There are our bases covered. Then you're looking at, okay, the upside. And so, I mean, you know, we just, Luckily, most of our dealers are value add. And so we're not just betting on hypothetical market increasing, right? Like we, we are doing things fundamentally to change the dynamic of the deal to where we are at a higher level. And so we underwrite that and, you know, with our rehab budget, et cetera. So that makes it a little bit easier in our, my world, at least for the kind of deals that we do versus mm -hmm. if I bought a class A stabilized, like I'm 100% susceptible to the market, right? Yeah. I can't go make a deal really much nicer, right? I mean, you know, or, or most people that are buying those aren't kind of necessarily planning that. And so that's that. I mean, then you kind of, you know, you got to play with the, what's your occupancy at, what's your rents at. If the market kind of flattens for a year or two, what does that look like? Right. And it's just making sure that you're, you're protected. And then even, you know, debt go into the deal differently. Like we had a deal in Atlanta that we ended up doing at a lower leverage point just because we could yeah. support it. And I'm like, well, it's less risk. And it was yeah. interesting because you have different investors that'll come out of the woodworks for that kind of deal. Right. People that might put a hundred thousand in every deal, like the same people were coming out and they're putting two, 300,000 in that deal. Because again, that deal is so much more safer than another deal, right? Our leverage yeah. point is so much lower. And so what's in there. And then it's interesting because as a sponsor, it's almost like I can, you know, I can talk, I, you know, on that deal, like it's, I mean, I will always be able to pay her something now. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like maybe, okay, maybe the market takes a dip. We don't hit our number, but, there's, you know, your debt service is so low that you still have so much more, you know, meat left for you to pay something. So it's interesting. And, and so do you find it a lot easier to raise money on deals that you're putting more, you know, more down payment down? So we've only had, I mean, the, that one is the extreme example where we were lower. It's different, right? I mean, there's always the fear of, okay, I have to raise more money, but then it's like, becomes a selling point that we are lower leverage, right? We're right. not the deal. Our deals have never, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, when I look at it, we've never been able to do the 80 years, I 80% uh, IO, five years, sorry, 80% leverage, five years IO, you know, the, those deals, like there's deals that in Dallas only work because of that. And that's fine. I mean, that's, right. that's a tool, right? Being able to get the right kind of loan. But unfortunately, we, we haven't been able to do that. But the flip side is being at the lower leverage point and being able to get five years old because we're lower leverage, that's, that's, that's attractive. I mean, 
even me as an investor, I'd invest in that deal just because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just a lower risk deal, right? Absolutely. Is it a good sponsor? Is the value add there? Okay. And then, you know, worst case, if, you know, sponsor doesn't do their part, well, I mean, we're still at such a low leverage, right? So. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. What else? I mean, what else are you guys doing or what advice? Maybe this is a good, better question. What advice would you have to investors looking to invest? Say it's my mom, say it's me who I've invested in lots of deals, whoever it is, there's a million syndicators out there. I feel like they're the new, new wholesalers. <laughs> they're all <laughs> over the place. What advice would you have as far as what to look for in a deal? What as maybe paperwork, maybe what, how the offering memorandum or the subscription mm -hmm. paperwork goes. Yeah, I would say read the, the operating agreement. There are subtleties in there that can be changed that people will easily overlook that, you know, I mean, different sponsors operate different ways, right? Like so far, and I think, I mean, we, we, we I think we will always be this way. You know, I don't want to make any promises, but, you know, we, we let our investors get the upside in our deals, right? If we have that unicorn, our investors ride that train with us, right? Whereas, you know, like our structure is very simple, right? We don't do hurdles. We keep it pretty simple because you know, our goal is to responsibly grow a bigger company, right? How do we get to a hundred deals, you know, as a company? And so you don't do that by milking any one deal, right? You build, you know, you build a track record, you build a, re a reputation and a following. And so, you know, to me, it's read the company agreement, understand, is there a, is there a cash out, a refi? What does that look like? Are you, do investors have, you know, are, is the investors money being structured more as debt than equity? Right. Like, is there a point where basically investors get cashed out and now the syndicator owns a deal free and clear? And that's fine. Like some investors are happy with that. And syndicate, I mean, it's more power to the syndicator, right? There's nothing wrong with that structure. It's just different, right? Just know what you're yeah. getting into, you know, and then what are the rules around, you know, being able to, you know, vote, right? Can you get rid of a bad syndicator? Understanding those things. And, um, but really, I mean, learn the basics of underwriting the deal. Right. Even a syndicator with a track record, go do some of the homework. I mean, you know, $50,000 is not a small chunk of change, right? Yeah. Go and, you know, that's worth you spending the five hours to go just understand the basics. What does reversion cap mean? How do I calculate that? What does rent escalators mean? How do I calculate that? And then does it pass the gut check, man? Like I said earlier, it's not, is it the deal that you're paying 80 and your cost base is 110 and you need to sell for 140? I've literally had a broker come up to me. And I'm not going to mention any names or markets, but you know, the broker literally said, well, at least this deal feels right. You guys are buying it for X, you're putting X into it and you're selling at X or Y things in this market sell at Y. Right. Yeah. Then he said, you know, other people will buy at a much higher price point, but, but then, you know, like nothing in this market sells at that price point. Yep. Right. So maybe in five years it might, but it's, you know, there's a different kind of deal. You know, and again, people are very successful doing that too, right? It's mm -hmm. you know, and I don't want to say that our strategy is the right way or the wrong way. It's there's different strategies that can get you success, right? It's about you as an investor. What are you comfortable with? Does that strategy align with what your strategies are, right? Because I mean, I have another friend who he has really patient equity. His equity is okay with getting the 5% return for five years yep. to buy the best property in the best intersection, yep. right? His strategy works well with his investor strategy my investors would kill me if we, if we got that out of, you know what I mean? If I presented that to them. So, you know, it's about aligning interests. And so, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, and I tell people, if you're new, it's try to invest with different syndicators, right? Learn what you like and don't like, right? If you see this as a long-term investment career, try different people, right? How does that syndicator communicate? Do yep. they communicate the good and bad? How did the process look like? Did they have an online digital thing or was it like you have to mail it in the mail or fax it? 
you know, do they make themselves available? How do they do their distributions? Were you comfortable with the wiring process? There's a lot of things to kind of, you know, account for, right? Yeah, no, that's huge. And, you know, one of the things that I've looked for is how do they talk to me? How do they talk to my investor? Do they have a track record? You know, do they have a cap on the return that, that they can give me? What kind of fees do they have as well, though? You know, there's, you know, the really popular syndicators, you know, there's the Grant Cardones, there's Jed Milburn here, here in Salt Lake City, where, I mean, they do a fantastic job, but you definitely pay for it. You're going to get a 5% pref and they're going to get some massive fees and more power to them because they've built yeah. that track record. And, but you know, there's, there's also got, there has to be a really good reward and a mitigated amount of risk. I don't think that you need to take massive risks in this type, in a real estate market or any type of real estate investment to get good returns. You don't need to get a 5% return to be safe, but you also don't need a 20% return to get wealthy you can get your eight to 10% cash and cash returns. And that's really, really good. And, and so what I've told people, stop swinging for the fences. Maybe we'll find a unicorn, just like you said, but be okay with not getting a unicorn and get rich for sure, not fast, but get rich for sure, you know? And, and I think that's one of the things I like about you and Ben is you're very conservative. You work really hard to not overpromise but also not under, under delivery, you know, be right there in the middle, which I think is the perfect spot. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's what we try to do. And then, I mean, we, <laughs> we have to sometimes grab the bull by the horns and wrestle some of these deals, man. Like it's just, you know, and you have to be willing to do that. Right. I think that's where some syndicators kind of falter. I mean, it is yeah. a business that you just bought and you have to, yeah. you know, things are not roses. I mean, our investors don't see the, the sausage making. Right. But I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you have to kind of put up with and deal with and, you know, keep the things rolling forward. Right. But like I said, especially it's like I mentioned earlier, I mean, all these deals, once you're six months into the deal, just it's all a mess. Yep. There's construction going on everywhere. There's occupancy, there's cash flow problems, you know, and being willing to kind of go in and you have to work it. I mean, here's okay. Here's where we are. Here's what we're going to do for the next two weeks to help get this solved. Here's this. Okay. We're going to do this. We're going to go ask our lender to release more reserves if they could work with us to, you know, expedite, like, I mean, think like we have a deal right now where, you know, we, we lose nothing for trying. And that's what I tell people. You lose nothing for trying. The most yeah. people can say is no. Literally went to our lender. I'm like, hey, we've done 50 of these rehabs. We've gotten $130 rent pops, right? But it's just moves slow. We we have occupancy. We have, an, you know, we, have, we, have, we have vacancy, right? So we can go in and bang out a lot more. But right now it's a cash flow problem, right? Being because, you know, these are deals. You have to fund it. So you have to do the work submit the draw, then the, you know, the lender inspects it, then they fund it. But it's like a four-week process. And yeah. so little, I went to the lender, and I'm like, well, hey, so we, we can, should we show you that we've done this? What about if we did, you know, a collective, like, let's get a, you know, if I had a GC bang out 25 of these at one time, we can get better pricing, and the lender, you know, can you guys work with us to fund some of it as a deposit and expedite this? And they're going back to their committee, and they're going to go try to get that for us. So, and then the guy says, like, yeah, we should be able to do that. I mean, it's, you nice. know, being willing to kind of go and, figure out the problems and solve them and move forward. Yeah. And, and what I've noticed for the good syndicators, the really good investors, they're problem solvers, you know, and, and that's what I like about you and Ben, uh, Maureen Miles, um, Jed, a couple other people that I really like is they kind of think outside the box. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty. Like you're talking about, they're not afraid to call a lender and hold them accountable. And they're just problem solvers. And that's the, the best 
skill I've had with my investments is just being a problem solver and, and figuring stuff out. Tell me a little bit, you know, we're kind of going over time, so I appreciate your time, but what can our listeners do to reach out to you? What do you have going on? Do you have deals that you're advertising? Um, are you going to have deals coming on later this year? I mean, how should we have them reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, feel free to, you know, check out the website, www.disruptequity.com or email me personally, Ferris, F-E-R-A-S at disruptequity.com. You know, I mean, we, we will, a good syndicator always has some sort of deal of flux, right? At least trying. I mean, you're always making yeah. offers though. You know, I mean, we're hoping to do two more by the end of the year, but I mean, those are probably five or six B's, but you know, we're happy to talk with people and learn and, you know, maybe at some point, you know, connect with people. Right. And then on top of that, we, you know, we do host a conference. We try to do four a year. We ended up doing three this year, but you know, our next one's in Boston, October 5th. So we'll be out there, you know, multifamily investor network, mfinvestornetwork.com. And then we'll be back here in Houston. So Sam, we've got to get you down for that one. So you should pencil that in. I think yeah. the date is February 6th. That is it that whatever that Saturday is. Cool. It should definitely come out. We did our February 8th. We did the first one last year. You know, first conference we ever did was last year. Turned out really well. I mean, 250 people were aiming for 300 for this time in Houston. And, um, you know, just want to kind of continue to build that out. And it's really meant to be a no sales pitch event. I mean, we lose money for these. Unfortunately, we're trying to just break even. <laughs> but, you know, we're trying to foster a community environment where people can come out and learn and get exposure to, you know, so what. The goal is to teach people at that event how to invest in multi Not even teach. You're not really trying to sell people like, anything, right? Yeah. So I say it is that people like me and you are willing to fly out across the country, spend three days and pay a couple hundred dollars to take it for an event, right? Because we're, yeah. you know, we're serious in the space and we're committed to, we already know it, right? And, you know, we're kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, I mean, this is kind of like a, a job. Now, what we're really instead is how do I expose the, the dentist, the doctor, the lawyer, the engineers, right? That are, have an interest in real estate and multifamily investing, but don't really know what it's about. And how do you at least give them you know, one day crash course, right? Into sure. getting exposure to the world of multifamily. And it's not to teach them everything, but it's to get, to, to let them know what they need to go learn next. Right. Yeah. And here's what I would say is I'd say, go to, go to this event. So it's mfinvestornetwork.com. Yeah. Go to the event. And, and the thing that I've really enjoyed is just meeting the actual syndicator, looking in their eyes and asking them the hard questions, you know, and, or, and just seeing how you interact with people. You know, there's one syndicator, I won't say his name. I would never work with him because he humiliated someone in our group in San Diego. And I don't know if you remember that, but I was appalled at how he treated people. He was arrogant and very smart individual. I'd never work with him, never send him a client. And he's called me, said, hey, can, can you raise money for this project? And I just had to kindly say no. So that's one really valuable thing I think um, they can, people can do is come to your event, meet a couple different syndicators, meet you and Ben and really understand that you're good down to earth people that are just, yeah, kind of, we try to bring experts from the community, yeah. right? Try to, we're trying yeah. to have, you know, we're trying to have an expert about opportunity zone. Rod Cleef will be there. Neil Bowell will be there. Gene Trowbridge will be there really bringing, you know, just to get people kind of a taste of the world. That's, that's absolutely, the, that's another way, you know, we'll, anyone in Boston will meet you or there or Houston as well. So. Hey, I'll come Maybe we'll do one in Salt Lake City that. sometime here, actually. That's probably actually a good – we might do that. That's probably a good market for next year. We'll see. Well, maybe we'll tee it up, and I can talk at your event about Salt Lake City and the uh, Silicon Slopes for five minutes. Let's make it happen. Sweet, dude. 